because as we got bigger, we did need structures. So at, when you start in a small little organic group, it's a bit easier. But what we did look back to was the way we got going uh, as a ministry was when we realised that we were going to stop trying to be cool and relevant to the local community, which was kind of ironic because when we stopped trying to be relevant to the young people and we were who we were in Christ and and sought to um, to love God and to love others in that identity, that's when we started to grow. So the turning point for Soul Revival was really when we gave up trying to look for a human strategy to try and get our youth group going and just go back to the Bible and say, I wonder what God has to say. And Matthew 22, 37 to 40, in a way, was like our entry into this idea of, of the fact that, that Christ is building his church and he's inviting us to partner with him as he grows his church. Welcome back to the Shock Absorber podcast uh, from Soul, Soul Revival Church. We're here with episode six and I'm here with my main man, Stu. How are you? G'day, Joel. I'm, I'm going well today and I hope you are too. And we are moving on. And we, But first of all, we must talk about things that are kind of interesting and impacting us at the moment. And uh, kindly, you've allowed me to have my go again, Stu. And um, I was going to bring up my favorite uh, movie which is Anchorman. Looking forward to hear what you think about it. I must have re- watched it at the right time too, but it's just a classic in terms of uh, comedy. I'm a huge fan of uh, comedic, uh, any kind of comedic activity. And um, <laughs> the Anchorman was... It's funny with Anchorman is that it came out and then a year later, like when the DVD was released, it got this huge cult following. And right. that's when I first watched it. I didn't okay. see it in the movies. Right. But I remember talking to someone that I knew that they were beside themselves in the theatre when they were watching it. But when I saw it, I, it's such a quotable movie and it's just, it's so out there and so ridiculous that, but it works so well that um, yeah. I, uh, yeah, it's a very quotable movie. Have you seen it? I have, yeah, a while ago. <laughs> so it's been a while. Do you I stay classy? But Do I stay classy? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I remember that line. Yeah, I've just, um, I think it's, I really enjoy comedy where it's like the fake arrogance. Like, yeah. So Ron Burgundy, the main character, is so stupendously arrogant that yeah. um, it's hilarious. And the, I've also <laughs> found that... Um, so he he wrote that movie with his writing partner from Saturday Night Live, Adam McKay, yeah. who's also gone on to write um, The Big Short and um, the other movie with Dick Cheney in it. What's that called? I can't remember it. But So basically they wrote like part of it, but if you watch the bloopers and stuff, it's like yeah. the, like half the movie is like on the spot um, improvisation. I really like that. All that. Oh, it's just so clever. That's the, another thing that I enjoy about guys that are good at comedy is just being able to do it on the spot is just um and be that funny is just insanely um enjoyable to when, they, when they bounce off each other and they see the chemistry come through on yeah, the movie school yeah hey. exactly and they also said that um steve carell was like blew everyone away they didn't realize how good he was yeah. until he actually was um on set and doing all yeah. those improvisations and stuff so it's always good to have a good laugh and have um i remember once we uh at a uh, a river convention in Bundina with um, church. Uh, we were all going to sleep in, in camping and going to sleep in the tents. And um, yeah. I kept everyone awake with just yelling out anchor man quotes for, <laughs> for the they, whole night or for, just for a while? Maybe for two hours or so. Oh, so really? it was a while. Yeah. <laughs> How did that go down? Uh, some people went down okay, and other people who were probably in less salubrious uh, accommodation probably didn't enjoy it. Like the people that like had three people in one-man tents and stuff like oh, that. Oh, okay. So, um, but it all worked out for me because I was in a Taj Mahal of a tent. So 
anyway, but that was a good fun. <laughs> okay. Why don't we <laughs> we'll get serious for a little bit and we'll move on. Um, just recapping what we we're talking about in episode five, we had uh, you talking about lots of new people coming to the church after the the culture of Jesus and friendship set by the commitments that you'd kind of introduced that concept and. It was acting as a weekly shock absorber and helping to see what was going on in young people's lives and how you could bring the Bible to bear on a multitude of the issues they were bringing up. Yep. But then along with that, uh, there came a lot of issues, what we could probably call growing pains as um, part of that fast growth that was going on. And you were doing something new and exciting and some people in the church had never seen it before. And there were just like things like conflicts and controversies, challenges, people swearing, smoking, music that made some people feel uncomfortable loud concerts disrupting neighbors and uh, even people weren't even moving to different services like they would usually do in the previous times yeah and i liked how you said you approach it with sober joy as you saw them as gospel issues there were things like issues probably but coming from a good thing which is people getting to know jesus yeah yeah our favorite question that we always like to move on to is after recapping is what did you do next what happened next yeah, well, I think that was a really good introduction because I think um, as we grew really quickly at some stage of that growing time, we hit a tipping point where there were more people who had grown up in non-Christian families who had themselves taken on the faith personally, mm. attending the group. I was like that, for yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. Then there were people who had grown up in Christian families. So there was this real... Um, obvious excitement for that but also as you said there was a lot of challenges as well so we we had to i suppose take one problem at a time and solve each problem as we come across it and we try and do that in team with the staff at the church and also as a, as a leadership team if if there were problems that emerged and we um talking about another movie that movie the martian um <laughs> I don't know if I've seen that, actually. Yeah, that may be a movie we could talk about in another <laughs> podcast, but there's this great line in The Martian where this guy's stuck on Mars and he's like, "How did you?" he's asked, how did you survive? And he says, oh, I just solved one problem at a time. And yeah. I remember laughing at that, thinking youth ministry can be a bit like that. <laughs> right. You <laughs> solve one problem and then you go, okay, what's the next problem? So Let's go back to the list of 100. Yeah, to, to yeah. But, but as you said, that was, I, you know, we dealt with that with sober joy because while we were sobered by the things that were challenges, we were also joyful that we had these things that we needed to work through and so obviously we were looking for input from others we were listening to what other people were saying about our ministry so that we could understand what was happening Um, as I said in the last podcast we didn't always know what we were doing at the school ministry and so we were talking with people in youth works and in broader youth ministry so it was actually a time of connecting with other people and listening to them and through that time that was quite an exciting time because there was a Um, a depth of understanding that was coming to us from what we were doing so we were needing to answer questions with the bible so how does the bible help us to understand what's going on and we were really excited about trying to understand that so i was listening to what other people were saying about soul revival from a biblical point of view Um, an example of that is i remember that michael frost wrote an article on the internet that i read once and he said that Soul Revival, because uh, we'd met Michael Frost at Blackstump, which was a music festival he was speaking at, and the Soul Revival community was there in attendance, and we hung out with him a bit at that festival. And after he got to know us a bit, he wrote some stuff about us in this article, which was which was great. And he wrote this article, and he said that seeing the number of 
young people that had grown up in non-church families that were also part of the surfing culture at Soul Revival. He felt like Soul Revival was a really successful incarnational model of youth ministry. And I remember reading that thinking, what's an incarnational ministry? I didn't, I didn't understand that. So that was the beginning of us starting to ask the question, okay, what, what are we doing biblically? Like, sure, we based what we're doing on Jesus' command in Matthew twenty two thirty seven to 40 of love God uh, and love others. But um, yeah, as we tried to understand uh, how we could continue to, to keep in step with God's word, we were really interested in listening. So I had that um, thought. So I, I looked into incarnational ministry a bit and I came across people who were writing in that genre like Pete Ward and Mark Center and others like that. And um, I also heard other people talking about incarnational ministry and telling us what they thought it was. And basically, um, incarnational ministry was really focused on relationships at the time and having a relational ministry. So I was really interested to think, oh, maybe that is a theological paradigm that we're working within because friendship, as we've talked about in other podcasts, was really important to what we're doing and yeah. building relationships, not just having an event. But as I listened to people talk about it, I heard some phrases that I didn't really resonate with as deeply. Some of my friends who were, who were talking to me about incarnational theology were saying things like, oh, you've got to earn the right to, to be heard before you tell someone the gospel. So you don't just come out and preach the gospel to a teenager who's a surfer you need to well not need to but the idea is you earn the right to be heard so uh, immersing yourself in their culture uh, participating in their activities being where they're at whether it's hanging out at the beach or whatever it might be uh, over time you get to understand their language and their culture and you can speak more clearly into that context without being daggy or clunky understanding what they think is cool uh, yeah. what they think is the goal of their subculture and and building relationships with them in the context of that uh, was what my friends were saying was important before you actually then preach the gospel to them but then the problem i had was that when we do school ministry i would literally go into a classroom of year nine or ten kids and basically go through uh, the gospel with them and then because in the 90s we were allowed to ask them to think about making a, a step of faith literally doing that at, at school and saying if you'd like to make a step of faith you can actually become a christian and people were becoming christians so uh, i thought to be described as incarnational if i'm hearing it right and reading it right from what i'm seeing from others about this relational side of youth ministry and you know enculturating the gospel into a context you know if if jesus had become a jew to the jews and lived with the jews and spoke uh their language and and was in their context his incarnation was that a model of modern ministry to us should we incarnate ourselves into the surfing culture and be jesus to them should we surf with them and and hang out and then share the gospel well while i thought there were a lot of benefits in actually forming relationships with people and sharing the gospel in a relational way like i said we were going into the school and just actually just preaching and people were becoming christians at the chip lunches at school we'd just give a talk and people would become christians we at youth group on uh, friday night or at soul revival on saturday night we'd give a talk and sometimes people who came along for the first time would become christians now sometimes people came along and it would be a while before they made a commitment or sometimes people who weren't christians didn't make a commitment at all but i was really interested that um, in our experience the actual forming of relationships was important but it didn't need to necessarily be a step towards someone becoming a Christian. When you described that, um, how you actually do an incarnational 
ministry, when you're talking about having to become part of their subculture or whatever it is that those guys are, those guys and girls are into, does is there a danger there that you're perhaps not being authentic if it's not something that you're interested in? Like, if you were into surfing, would you have to just force yourself to be a surfer? Was that a, uh, something you were thinking about? Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, uh, a few years ago, about um, in the 2000s, I think it was about 2007, a book came out by Andrew Root, and he that that book is revisiting relational youth ministry and in that book he kind of deals with some of that kind of question Joel okay. talks about the fact that maybe some earlier um, practices of incarnational youth ministry might have been a bit manipulative by some people who practiced some of those things if they were only trying to form a relationship with someone for the end goal of them becoming a Christian mm-hmm. in his book Andrew Root talks about well the relationships you know he asks the question I suppose why maybe the relationships can be the end goal in themselves and that uh, you just form relationships with people. But, um, yeah, he definitely raised that issue. And I, I think I was feeling a bit nervous about that at the time too, thinking it doesn't really explain what we're trying to do when we're forming friendships with people. It's not like we're forming friendships with them to get them to make a commitment to Christ. I mean, we literally, like I said, we just tell them about Christ and if they heard that gospel message and were to put their faith in Jesus, then they, as an individual, could do that so um so sometimes people did that without a relationship sometimes with but yeah i think the danger definitely that root raises there is what you're talking about yeah okay cool so was that um most of what you thought about incarnation was there a next one that you were looking at well yeah the uh, well again like i said before there was just a lot of people commenting about what soul revival was doing because it was growing fairly quickly and i had some friends in youth ministry that were also saying to me oh maybe soul revival is a bit trinitarian and again, there was another big theological word that I hadn't come across before, <laughs> right. so I had a look at that one. And it, it um, was explained to me that Trinitarian approaches to youth ministry were focused on, again, relationships. The idea this time is instead of modelling the ministry on the incarnation of Christ, this theological category kind of tended to say, well, if God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are in eternity in a perfect relationship with each other. It's really important for us to express unity as Christians on earth. And so uh, when I asked what sort of examples of Trinitarian ministry there were around, I had uh, one of my friends say to me, oh, like World Council of Churches is really focused on trying to bring Christians together because the idea is that mission will be more powerful if... Christians are all united so maybe the idea is that some people get turned off Christianity because Christians argue with each other Um, and when I asked why did you think the Trinitarian theology was something that could explain soul revival my friends would say to me that well because you're so into community community is a form of expression of relationship that um, yeah maybe that's based on this Trinitarian model so I had that rattling around in my mind as well and then more than that some other people were looking at what we're doing and talked about something that I'd never heard of before and in the 90s there was a big debate in Sydney about the new perspective uh, that people like Tom Wright were uh, writing books about and people were saying oh maybe Soul Revival's a new perspective church because you guys are into community and that was part of that idea as well but I started to get a bit confused and one of the things that was a benefit for me was I'd been to campus bible study at the University of New South Wales when I was still at uni and um, Philip Jensen was the leader of that ministry and when I left New South Wales uni Philip said oh if you ever have any things you want to talk about just give us a ring so I remember writing down on a post-it note Joel I wrote down 
uh, incarnationalism, Trinitarianism, new perspective, and because they were three things that people had described us as. And I, I rang up Philip and I said, do you mind if I come around for a cup of tea? And he said, yeah, sure. So I went around to Philip's place with my little post-it note. <laughs> and it was, it was funny because I hadn't been to Bible college at that point, And I was just really keen to hear what a trusted elder thought about these different theories that people were throwing around. And anyway, I sat down with a cup of tea with him and he said, so what can I do to help you? And I said, well, basically, Philip, I, I just want to know, like, you know, a little bit about soul revival. Are we, are we new perspective, incarnational or Trinitarian? And he, he was really helpful to me because he, he explained what he thought each of those perspectives were. And he, he said, look, in my opinion, I think you're continuing to do a ministry that you've kind of learnt from here at Campus Bible Study where... Uh, the Bible's really important that people mature in Christ using the Bible, that people become Christians through hearing the gospel, and they don't become Christians by being part of the community. They become Christians by hearing the gospel and then expressing their new reconciled relationships with God and each other through the community that they're, they're now being discipled in, yeah. and then together reaching out on mission. And I said, yeah, and he's, he's like, you know, that's just a summary of what he was talking about. But then he said, I think... I think a good theological perspective for you to think about is just continuing to base our revival on the atonement. And the atonement is talking about the fact that we have been reconciled to God and and through, oh, sorry, we've been reconciled to God through Jesus' work on the cross and then it, we've also been reconciled to each other through Jesus' work on the cross. Now, I had heard some people say that, that you know, focusing on the cross all the time and talking about the atonement that some evangelicals tended to be talking about uh, getting right with God and going to heaven but didn't give people a lot of equipment for their lives. But what I found really helpful from Philip's conversation was he was grounding this theology of the atonement in something really practical, the relationship we had with God now and the relationships we could express with each other in the church came from what Jesus has done for us. So we didn't have to build community, we just had to express it. We didn't... We didn't um, really think that through until he kind of explained that and I thought that was really helpful so ever since then back from the you know mid 90s onwards we've always really talked about the fact that the cross is the climax of the gospel story you know everything in the old testament is pointing to what Jesus was going to do for us on the cross and then as we read the new testament it's looking back to that work and and unpacking what that looks like for our lives and then uh, pointing to the future where we will have an eternity with God in, in eternity, the new heaven and the new earth. So the idea of the atonement was very exciting to me. And as I started diving into that, you know, I thought to myself, well, it's funny that when we first read Matthew 22, 37 to 40, love God and love others, we knew we needed to ask Jesus how to love like he loved. And the best expression of his love was to die for us. And then um, as we came across Romans 12, what we saw in Romans 12 was that Paul had explained how the gospel uh, can extend the grace of God to us through what Jesus has done for us from chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 11. But then from chapter 12 onwards, Paul talks about what that looks like practically. And I love it in Romans 12 that he starts off by saying, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So for me, that solved the problem of the atonement's not just about become a Christian and then you have, you have this, this period of time where you're waiting to go to be with God in heaven. It's actually 
going to in that you know the cross can inform your life it's the thing that's transformed us yeah yeah yeah. because then he goes on doesn't he He says be transformed by the renewing of your mind yeah Uh, so i love that idea that instead of being a consumer that i'm actually going to be a servant when i become a christian that christ loved and served me by laying his life down for us on the cross and so in view of god's mercy in that he's forgiven us through what jesus did for us on the cross we are to be living sacrifices and then he unpacks that in chapter 12 by saying the way to express that is by being part of a body so instead of just living for my own priorities all the time and what i want to do i'm actually going to be seeking to lay down um, my priorities for the sake of the kingdom and building up god's people in the church and so i felt like that was a really exciting theological perspective to really dig into uh, in that in that way. And that started, uh, you obviously started with this, sorry, not obviously, but you've been, realised that the atonement theology is something that you're quite interested in and think does express what Sorrowville was doing the best um, at the time. Does that mean that you wanted to, that was like kind of the, um, the building, the foundation of what you were doing. Did you want to build a strategy after that in a more formal way now that you knew that you were growing a lot and you needed to kind of just formalize it in a little in a certain way not because we weren't really about formalizing things but we wanted to kind of put some structure around it yeah no that's a really good point because as we got bigger we did need structures so when you start in a small little organic group it's a bit easier but what we did look back to was the way we got going uh, as a ministry was when we realized that we were going to stop trying to be cool and relevant to the local community which was kind of ironic because when we stopped trying to be relevant to the young people and we were who we were in christ and and sought to um to love god and to love others in that identity that's when we started to grow so the turning point for soul revival was really when we gave up trying to look for a human strategy to try and get our youth group going and just go back to the bible and say i wonder what god has to say and Matthew 22, 37 to 40, in a way, was like our entry into this idea of, of the fact that, that Christ is building his church and he's inviting us to partner with him as he grows his church. So that was quite a liberating kind of, concept. And kind of following what he's saying to express that community is the next kind of thing? Is that what you're getting Yeah, at? Yeah, so how do we express it? And so when yeah. you look around at different youth ministries in the 90s, uh, you could see lots of different models. I mean, Mark Center in his book, The Coming Revolution in Youth Ministry, that we've referred to before, mm-hmm. predicted that there'd be lots of different new emerging ideas on strategies of youth ministry. And uh, I think a lot of those strategies that I saw in Sydney anyway were what seemed to be from an incarnational theological category. So Christian surfers was, the strategy was, let's go down to the beach and hang out with surfers, surf with them, and then run a group on Monday nights maybe where we can invite those surfers to hang out together. Well, I, I think that was quite strongly underpinned by incarnational theological model. But as I looked around Sydney, there were other models that were emerging. So if you go back uh, a decade before we started, back to 19, late 1970s, there was one of the Jesus Movement leaders in Sydney, a man called John Kidson, who'd written a book called Brass Tax. And Brass Tax had become a very influential strategy Uh, in youth ministry and what that strategy was was that you run a youth group on a Friday night and get lots and lots of kids to come along and then invite some of them to go to a Bible study and then some of them would become Christians go to the Bible study and then some of those kids would go to the church service so it was like a funnel method it was described as but by the late 80s that funnel method which was run in lots of churches across Sydney um, 
in some ways I think you could probably say it had deteriorated a little in context because sometimes it was just too raucous for, for the whole model to work because John Kitson's idea was you'd, you'd have fun and games and then you'd have supper and then you'd have a talk or you'd have fun and games, a talk and then supper. But when it got to the talk, often in the youth groups, when the kids had come for the fun and games, they actually weren't actually in the mood to listen to the talk. And so that model in some contexts was starting to burn out youth leaders because it was just like really hard to manage. And so in response to the brass tax model, a guy called Ken Moser, his friend Ed Vaughan, and another guy called Al Stewart wrote a book in the late 80s that was sort of like a, a counterpoint to that funnel method and they called it No Guts, No Glory. Oh, and sounds, sounds vicious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the idea is that instead of calling the youth group on a Friday night a funnel, they were calling it a dump truck. So they were saying that it's almost like at the beginning of the night a truck comes into the church car park, tips up a whole heap of teenagers into the car park. They all come running around the hall for an hour or two. They're not there for the gospel. So when you try and preach the gospel to them, they're not keen to listen. And then at the end of the night, the dump truck pulls in again and they all jump onto the dump truck and they drive off into the night. So they called that a dump truck. And they said the problem with it is most kids aren't coming for their real need, which is to meet Christ, they're coming for their perceived need, which is to have fun. So that was an argument against brass tax, sorry. It was against, yeah. Why so was it called brass tax, by the way? Uh, I don't know. What you were saying, and I didn't know why it was Yeah, called that's a good question. Tax. I might, yeah, I, I, I think John's a great guy. I'll have to we'll ask have to him one day. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But, um, but no guts, no glory. Yeah, but come back to no guts, no glory. So Ken Moser and his friends were saying, you have, if you're going to go for the glory in youth ministry, you have to have the guts to shut down your youth group. Okay. So you have to shut down your Friday night youth group because most of the kids aren't coming for the Bible anyway. But if you start a Bible study before church on Sunday, for example, then the Christian kids on Friday night will go to that. Now, in reality, they were predicting that maybe only four or five kids from the 30 or 40 kids you had coming on Friday night would go to the Bible study, but they'd be hardcore Christians who are wanting to have, you know, they're the no guts, no glory kids. You know, let's have guts to to sit down with the Bible, to really dig into it, to learn the Bible together. And their prediction was that they would grow evangelism through the bead method, which was one by one they'd ask their friends to come along. So they contrasted that with the dump truck. Mm. So here we were a sole revival. We didn't really fit into the brass tax model and we didn't fit into the no guts, no glory model. But to me, it seemed like there was a bit of a war in youth ministry between those two positions. So people, a lot of people doing it. Yeah, well, yeah, there was lots of people doing No Guts, No Glory saying, you know, no, we all got to have guts and do this, which was then meaning that some people were disagreeing and they were talking about that and different ones were saying different things. And then Solis came into the middle of that saying, well, we've actually tried to break out of this idea of having a group that's just focused on an age group, that we're actually trying to be an all-age, all-stage group or intergenerational approach. So in some ways, our intergenerational approach saying that we're not going to run a youth group for the teenagers. We're actually going to get the youth leaders and be a peer group and a community that the young people grow up into. We were also saying that that community is based on the Bible. And because we had the commitments, we found that we had a very strong core of Christians that were coming to big social events. Which is kind of the no guts, no glory. Yeah, basically people who are in the no guts, no glory camp looked at us and thought because we had heaps of hanging out and community time that we we're more of a brass tax group but the brass tax people thought we we're no guts no glory because we weren't earning the right to be heard and we were jumping straight into studying the bible with people who came along for the first night so i think as we we were part of that big conversation we we're trying to just say well i think soul revival is a bit different we're intergenerational 
and we we'd be a group of friends as leaders who were then trying to lead the kids and so that created a bit of a different practice from all the other groups in Sydney at the time. Okay. And so then you're, you're trying to navigate your way through a war in youth ministry. So, so with, with these different debates going on youth ministry, that, that was um, something that people were... It, it wasn't... I, looking at, back at it, Joel, I don't think it was necessarily a bad thing. Like, it sounds like a lot of conflict and people arguing with each other, but I actually think there was a search going on in the late 90s for new approaches to youth ministry. So rather than seeing it as a negative, uh, I call it war in youth ministry, have a bit of fun with it, but it was actually a, a positive thing because people were exploring different models and debating and actually talking wanting about to it and it, want yeah. to do it really well. So it created different practices and that created uh, different contexts. But people in general were really searching for really good discipleship and good mission in, in youth ministry. So I suppose at the end of all that, we, we came to a conclusion that it was okay to be a little bit different to other people because we felt like we'd come through a different journey. We hadn't journeyed through the no guts, no glory idea. We hadn't journeyed to continue on with that brass tax idea. So Soul Revival was a bit different in its practice to other churches that were around. And, and then I think what was happening in the late 90s is people started to recognise Soul Revival was only a small uh, group in comparison to all the youth ministries in Sydney, but it was starting to look like a different strategy to ministry that created some different practice but all along the really important thing that we wanted to achieve was to make sure that our theological convictions that is that um, we continue to preach Christ and Christ uh, crucified and the fact that Jesus rose from the dead to give us new life means that um, uh, we can have new life in him that we can have relationships that are actually informed by that informs a strategy of community where we're seeking to express the reality of a Jesus-shaped community that that he he is uh, building his church and we are partnering with him in that and so our practices were were often things like let's do Saturday night as a space for young adults and other people who want to come and join in senior teenagers to be mates with each other to work out together what it looks like to live as a Christian in this generation so in that way, Joel, I think it, at a local level at Guy Anglican Church, it, it looked to me like that was the shock absorber that we were talking about, that a group of young adults who, you know, we were only in our early 20s, had just sat down with the Bible and thought about the cultural context we were in, looked at the fact that other models around that people were debating didn't really work in our context, and we came up with new strategies that came from our theology in our context to help us to pass on the gospel. Yeah, right. And so... Were there any other, like, you've, you've come up with a, a theological or theoretical um, idea of how you want to do it and then you've created a strategy around it. What were some of the other practical applications you had? Were there things you did immediately after realising, oh, this is what we're doing? Or was it still more just like next thing off the list as you spoke about before? Yeah, I think that's a helpful question because I think we were trying to understand what we were doing so that we could explain it to other people as well. In one of the comments I made, I think it was in the last podcast, I was saying that as I got older, I realised that we needed to try and explain to other Christians what we were doing, as well as preaching the gospel to, to people who weren't people of faith. And so we were missioning to people and we needed to explain it to Christians. So this sort of thinking helped us to communicate to other Christians what we thought we were trying to do and opened up a dialogue between other people who disagreed with us so that they could strengthen our approach by challenging things that we were thinking or doing that might not have been 
the best way forward. So, for example, the fact that people were saying, oh, you guys look incarnational or you guys look Trinitarian was actually helpful in getting me to go and speak with Philip Jensen about, you know, what do you think? And, and because he was a trusted elder of mine, I really trusted him when he said, no, the atonement's a really good theological construct because I was really keen for our community to experiment with its strategy but not experiment with its theology because we wanted to remain a reformed evangelical ministry but then how that was expressed on the ground at Gaimi in the 1990s and beyond that up to now was going to be something we could work out together as a group of Christians as we sought to express our relationships with God and each other. Okay, so you're starting to kind of make a difference in terms of how you're actually doing your youth ministry. Was anyone else interested in kind of talking to you about it and doing what you, you were doing at Soul Revival at the time? Yeah, well, as I said, some people were talking about their approach to youth ministry and how it was different to our approach to youth ministry, but other people were starting to say too, oh, that's, that looks like a lot of fun. We might try and do some of those ideas in our church. So um, that, that was the beginning of uh, some really great networks that we started to form in the late 90s and into the 2000s when we started to become friends with other local churches like Menai Anglican, but also other churches across the city like Narrabeen Anglican was a church we started to, to get friends with. The other thing that was helpful for this idea of theology and strategy and practice was even even the things that we were doing within our group started to become more and more informed by what we were doing with our theology. So in the early days, um, a guy called Matt Redman helped us to start our sick magazine, which was a magazine we thought we'd write for a bit of fun. But um, And looking back on that, Matt and I had a lot of fun with that. But um, we also were trying to express some of these newfound convictions and it was really cool because we could give them to other people and say this is what we're thinking what do you think so some people started to think maybe the next step is to start thinking about how we could do this with other churches and do this across a broader broader context what was the response to that so like is that something that happened at the time in the 90s that other churches were working together or is it something that was relatively new or not seen very often yeah i mean i think i think within the circles that we traveled in the 90s there was there was always churches that were working together to a certain extent. But the other thing that was, well, I thought was quite um, a pattern in Sydney was that a lot of churches just saw themselves as a local church that was doing their thing. And um, by the end of the 90s, which is maybe something we could talk about next week, I started feeling like it'd be really cool to look into how could local churches and local youth ministries work together more to achieve together things that, that um, they, could, they could do together like that. Yeah, absolutely. And so we'll wrap it up there for this episode. And still, we want your questions. We haven't got any yet, so you've got to send them in. We want to, we want to read them out and actually answer them. Um, and so you can email Stuart, stu at soulrevivalchurch.com or you can get us on Twitter or Instagram, and that's at Stu Crawshaw or at Joel McMaster. But with that, we'll finalise it there and say thank you very much, Stu, for another podcast. Thank you, Joel. It's a lot of fun. <laughs>